The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Today, Pete and I are talking about mirror therapy. And before we get into this topic, I want to provide you with a quick recap of constraint-induced therapy part one, which included the history of constraint-induced therapy, learning about reflexes and movement, the role of operant conditioning in constraint-induced therapy, and a comparison of research done by Dr. Edward Taub, and that performed by Dr. Stephen Page and Pete in their lab. We also tied in the importance of home programs and clinic follow-up for helping clients to follow through. Then in part two, of constraint-induced therapy. We talked about the commitment that's required to participate, when people should not wear the constraint, and Pete reviewed frequently asked questions that he receives about this intervention. We also talked about research on the use of constraint-induced therapy at the acute stage and the vectors trial, when it's safe to begin this intervention, using constraint-induced therapy during the chronic phase, and other important topics, including using it with children, reimbursement, socialization, starting a constraint-induced therapy program, and using this intervention for the lower extremity. I have to say, out of all the therapies that rehab can do, mirror therapy seems like it's the most robust. The the EBR, SR, and other meta-analyses get behind mirror therapy so much, I'm amazed. And uh, this is just because I've known you and we started doing this podcast, I've been keeping an eye on mirror therapy, thinking, okay, it was a good thing. Apparently, it's not a good thing. It's a great thing. Wow. That's important to talk about, I think. Unlike a meta-analysis that is done, you know, you might look at a meta-analysis from 
2016, well, it's been a while since 2016. The EBRSR is updated every year. So you're always getting the latest and greatest in meta-analysis form. And here's some of the stuff they say. Mirror therapy on its own or in combination with other interventions can improve many aspects of upper limb function following stroke. Now you might think that that's a pretty mild statement, but it says can improve. And the word can there is bizarre for the EBRSR because they never say can. They say it may, it may not, it doesn't seem to. It may, maybe, kind of, sort of, but this is the one they say it can. And hmm. that stuck out because there's only like that and nothing else where they are willing to go out on a limb and say it can. And it showed strong evidence, level 1A, the best, the highest evidence to support the use of mirror therapy to improve unilateral spatial neglect in the subacute phase of stroke recovery and improve upper extremity kinematics and motor function. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you ready? Um, I think I'm ready. I never know. Oh, I thought you were one of those people that was born ready. No, I'm really not. Mm. I'm, I'm one of those people that gets nervous when I'm ready and has to take a nap. And, and before I get too tired, hey, Deb Battistel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you? Did you have a nap today? I had one nap. So I'm, I'm famous for having several <laughs> naps per day, but I had one. So I'm, That's I'm great. ready to go. Yep. Yeah. Well, kind of a weird story for you. I don't know if I, I think I told you about this guy who had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and I was doing a test on him. This was a couple of weeks ago and uh, he had the correction, the surgery for it. And he had a big plate on the left side of his brain. Do you remember this? Yes. The guy that had the... In the sides of the brain controlling things. Yeah, the wrong side was controlling. So yeah. he had a big plate in the left side of his head, but he had left hemiparesis. Of course, that's the opposite of the way it should be. So the guy comes in the other day, and in my defense, he had a mask on. This is my excuse anyway. So he has a mask on, and I don't recognize him. He starts talking to me like we're old friends. And we had done this two-hour test, but I didn't recognize the guy. So then I noticed his hand was jammed in his pocket, and it was very glassy and it was swollen. And uh -oh. and I said, now I know who this guy is. I didn't recognize his face, but I recognized his arm. How weird is that? There's something wrong with me, Deb. What's <laughs> wrong with that? We have all kinds of brain that, that is dedicated to understanding facial expressions and recognizing people that matter to us. And all I could see was this guy's arm, and that's what I reckon. I think I'm, I think I'm, I've lost it. I don't think that's weird for people who work with people who've had strokes and brain injuries. It was crazy, and then I was like, "Dude, I remember you." Yeah, yeah, we had a long talk. Yeah, I remember. So, did you see him on Zoom? No, <laughs> I saw him in person. Both oh, you times. did! Oh my god. <laughs> Today we're talking about my one of my favorite topics, mirror therapy. Are you kidding me? What that's the thing that you're an expert in. I am not an expert, Pete. Well, nobody's really an expert in <laughs> anything involving the brain, but you're as close as we have. So I just think I get excited about interventions that work. And so, you know, when I was going to school, it was constraint-induced therapy. Now it's mirror therapy. Now it's probably both, but mirror therapy I'm more excited about. Okay. Well, where do you think we should start with? Well, I have two ideas here. We could start with the article 
that I found that talks about some interesting recent research that was done, or we could start with the history. Hmm. Well, of course, I like the history. I know you do. Should I do? Well, we could do a little bit of both. How about this? I think I can find a good place that I will stop on the history, and then you can take over with this cool article. Will that work? Yeah, sounds good to me. So the guy who came up with this is the great V.S. Ramachandran. And I roll my R's because he rolls his R's with this great British Urdu accent. He talks about the four pounds of awesome sitting at the top of your shoulders. And I love this guy. He has a ton of TED Talks, a ton of books out. He was born in 1951. I guess that makes him like 69 years old. He comes from pretty good stock. His mother had a degree in mathematics. His grandfather was one of the framers of India's constitution. So he comes from kind of a Brahmin family there in in India. He went to Cambridge for his PhD. He has two additional honorary doctorates, and now he works at University of California, San Diego, and he's part of UC San Diego's medical school's neuroscience program. His philosophy generally revolves around this idea that we're not hardwired, like the occipital lobe is the only area for vision and the language centers on the left side of the brain and left side of the body is controlled by the right side of the brain. The right side of the body is controlled by the left side of the brain. And the, But rather that we're, as Michael Mersinich, another great neuroscientist put it, we are soft wired, mm. not hardwired, but soft wired. And in fact, he goes even further. He says, not only is the brain constantly in flux and we can do things and we can do things in rehab for people with brain injury that makes it even more in flux, but that because your brain and my brain is now interacting, there's mirror neurons in both of us. And those mirror neurons allow us to empathize with each other through facial expressions and vocalizations, et cetera, et cetera. So imagine if you're looking at somebody, you're in the kitchen and they accidentally cut their finger with a very sharp knife. You immediately, your mirror neurons will sense that. And then the part of the brain that represents that finger that was cut in the other person starts to light up. So you truly empathize with that person and they go, ah, and you go, ah, and you know, like really great actors do this really well. They can do it to a theater full of people through facial expressions. So you feel what they feel. They cut their finger and the portion of your brain that lights up is the portion that represents your finger. So you're essentially representing in your brain, their finger being cut. That's how powerful these mirror neurons are. And I've done some reading about this and it's kind of complex and they're not super sure why mirror therapy works. But I think what they're saying or the best idea we have so far is that this will be training for the weaker side in somebody who has a stronger side and the weaker side. The weaker side essentially empathizes through mirror neurons with the stronger side and therefore lights up. It's craziness. So mirror therapy may actually use mirror neurons to activate the correct side of the brain. So what did you find in the research? You have this article and what, what does that say that sounds cool? Oh, uh, there's a couple things in here. Most of the studies have been done on the upper limb. I just, I found that interesting. Most of the studies last between one and eight weeks and mirror therapy showed definitive motor and sensory improvements, but the extent of sensory improvement is limited. And then also it, it improves that hemi inattention or hemi neglect, but that's limited as well. So when I went into the article and I started reading, this is something we haven't talked about, but they looked at pusher syndrome 
So we haven't really talked much about that. I'm not sure why. Somehow that just escaped our brains. But um, there's a study by Yang et al. And they intervened in the subacute phase for pusher syndrome. And these patients showed improvement by decreased severity of the syndrome and lower extremity motor function improved. So I thought that was really cool. That is really cool. And just to explain to folks what pusher syndrome is, people that have this syndrome, and it usually goes away on its own. It's usually during the subacute phase, but they essentially list towards the affected side. Well, what I know about pusher syndrome is if you try to provide that physical correction, the person will push harder. Yeah, that is they become pushers, especially when the therapist pushes them because they see true north as different than the rest of the world does. So they essentially push against the therapist trying to push against them. I think it's 18 degrees on average that they see true north as 18 degrees towards their affected side. Mm -hmm. Now, the treatment typically is to have them reorient towards vertical lines in the room, but self-orient so that using their intact visual ability to overcome this portion of the brain in the thalamic region that was hit by the stroke. Yeah. Pusher syndrome is difficult for therapists to treat. And I know it really gets in the way when people are trying to transfer because they need they need help to transfer and they're usually leaning pretty heavily on a person who's helping them. And then the person who's helping tries to get them righted and then they push harder and it's it can become a challenge for people. And then this article spoke to helping people with complex regional pain syndrome improve as well, which you've mentioned multiple times over the course of our few episodes. Those were the two that I found to be the most interesting. Anytime we can treat sensation that's impaired and help make that better, it's going to, I think it's going to improve the person's quality of life. So I've found some stuff in the research I thought was really amazing. And this has come up, I'm working on another edition of my book and the book and the blog and this podcast and everything kind of crashes in on itself. And half the time, I don't know what I'm working on, but I'm working on all three at once and it's craziness. But as you know, I'm a big fan of the EBRSR, the Evidence-Based Review of Stroke Rehabilitation. It's the great Canadians, Robert T. Sell. And um, one of the editors of the EBRSR I've been in communication with, because every once in a while I find a mistake in there and I tell them about it. In any case, I might be able to get him to come on Noggins and Neurons. So I'm looking forward to that. I don't even want to mention the guy's name until I'm sure. Yeah, that would be really cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. They know a lot. But the EBRSR is essentially a large meta-analysis focused specifically on stroke. There's also another sister website. It's the same group of people and they do it for acquired brain injury. But I want to talk about the EBRSR and what it says about mirror therapy, because it is, I have to say, out of all the therapies that rehab can do, mirror therapy seems like it's the most robust. I put it even above constraint-induced therapy. In constraint-induced therapy, as we discussed in the last episode, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. The the EBRSR and other meta-analyses get behind mirror therapy so much, I'm amazed. And uh, this is just because I've known you and we started doing this podcast. I've been keeping an eye on mirror therapy thinking, okay, it was a good thing. Apparently, it's not a good thing. It's a great thing. Wow. That's important to talk about, I think. So the EBRSR is essentially a meta-analysis for every aspect of stroke recovery. And meta-analysis, as we talked about during the research episode, is all about a study of studies. Why would you read all the studies when you can read one study and have somebody that read all the studies tell you what they all mean? 
that's kind of what the EBRSR is. So unlike a meta-analysis that is done, you know, you might look at a meta-analysis from 2016. Well, it's been a while since 2016. The EBRSR is updated every year. So you're always getting the latest and greatest in meta-analysis form. And here's some of the stuff they say. Mirror therapy on its own or in combination with other interventions can improve many aspects of upper limb function following stroke. Now, you might think that that's a pretty mild statement, but it says can improve. And the word can there is bizarre for the EBRSR because they never say can. They say it may, it may not, it doesn't seem to. It may, maybe, kind of, sort of, but this is the one they say it can. And Hmm. that stuck out because there's only like that and nothing else where they are willing to go out on a limb and say it can. And then they have another sister one. It's called Stroke Engine. And it said that results from this Stroke Engine. So Stroke Engine is spelled with the E for stroke is the E for engine. So that shares an E. It's kind of weirdly spelled, but you can find it on the web that way, Stroke Engine. And it showed strong evidence, level 1A, the best, the highest evidence to support the use of mirror therapy to improve unilateral spatial neglect in the subacute phase of stroke recovery and improve upper extremity kinematics and motor function. Now, what do you think about that? Because did you say something about spatial neglect that it wasn't that effective? No, I said it is. Oh, good. Then we're in agreement. Yeah. And I, so this is one of the things that I've heard therapists talk about where they, it's not appropriate for use. And it, it it's just a misunderstanding. That's all it is. And I want to clarify that so that people aren't misunderstood about the research and their interventions. Because if a person has to look towards an affected side to do an intervention, it's going to help improve a problem, but also due to the way mirror therapy works will help it improve. So you're talking specifically about unilateral neglect and how they are essentially forced to look at Mm -hmm. the more affected side? Yeah. Well, yeah. And it has to be the functions of the mirror therapy, the intervention of what it causes to occur inside of the brain that helps the neglect to improve because just doing an intervention, having somebody look to the left may or may not be effective, correct? I think so, yeah. I mean, that that's how I think about it. But you're talking more. You're talking about general spatial problems. Yeah, according to the EBRSR, it's quite effective hmm. for unilateral spatial neglect, okay. which is always a big problem in a population of stroke survivors, but can be a problem in people that have acquired brain injury of any kind mm-hmm. where you have a stronger side and a weaker side. Yeah. Pete, we asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have, although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research 
based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, And we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at neurons. At neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. So I wonder if you want me to go over what happens in the brain or do you want to do that? I think we we could just talk about it. You know, like what I know is that the brain controls the body and it's the brain that's affected when somebody has a stroke. And so if we talk about the different parts of the brain, maybe a little bit about what they control and then what how mirror therapy works in those areas of the brain. Okay. Is that a little too much? No, I think that's good. And I've actually written it down and I'm going to read it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, read it. I'll read it and extrapolate off of the reading Yeah, because the problem is the right-left thing. The right side of the brain controls left side of the body and vice versa. And if we're trying, like if I'm doing a talk in front of people, I would show them a slide and go that side and that side and I would use a pointer and everybody would know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I had to write it down today so I could make sure that I nailed it to be able to verbalize it. Yeah. So we're going to use fMRI. fMRI measures blood flow to a part of the brain, and it's a surrogate for neuroplastic change. But in this case, all you're trying to do is see which part of the brain has more blood flow, which side of the brain is lighting up when the person does mirror therapy. So what they have to do is they take the person and you know, fMRI is like MRI. It's the big tube and they slide you into the big tube. Have you had an MRI? I have a couple times. So just for the record, there's a brain in here that we saw it. Oh, that's good to Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. So, so they, and so you had your brain scanned. Mm -hmm. You did. I did. I hope everything's okay. Yeah. It's great now. I don't know if you know this, but the brain is pretty important. I think it is. No. (laughs) It's the noggins and the neurons. (laughs) It is. Okay. Well, I had an MRI and Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, when you work in clinical research, they're often looking for normals and uh, to, to scan their brain. And I've, I dodged that bullet for 20 years. I never actually did it, but I did have it for my knee once. So it's the same thing. You're, you're put into this big tube. It's very loud. But in this case for fMRI, it goes one step further than MRI and it measures blood flow. And they take a mirror and they slide it in on top of the body of the person that's going to do mirror therapy to see what his brain does. Okay. So he's lying on his back and the mirrors is slid in. So it's bisecting him for therapists in a sagittal plane. And the reflective side is towards the stronger side. Okay. So you put them in an fMRI to scan their brain and you put the mirror just above their chest. And the reflective side is, let's say, facing their left strong side. So this person is a right hemiparetic person. They're weak on the right side. So it's the mirror is facing their left strong side. So they're looking at their left hand, but in the mirror. So it looks like they're looking at their right hand. That is when they move their left hand, it looks like the hand that doesn't move is moving perfectly well. In fact, what they do in these studies is they'll block the strong side from direct visual contact. So they can't see their strong side. They can only see the reflection of their strong side. And that's the only thing they want them concentrating on because they want to see what happens in the brain when they look at the reflection of the strong side. Now, you would expect that if the left hand is the one that's doing all the moving, remember that the paralysis is on the right side. If the left hand is doing all the moving, then the right side of the brain would light up because that's the way we're wired. We're wired opposite. And it does appropriately because they are moving that strong left hand. And it does. It lights up. But because the illusion, now they're looking in the mirror, because the illusion is so compelling to the brain, the portion of the brain that controls the paralyzed hand lights up as well. Mm. Same area as represents that weaker right hand. So you're moving your left hand, but you're looking into the mirror. So it looks like your right hand is moving. And you would expect that since the left hand is doing all the work, that the right side of the brain would light up, but it's exactly the opposite. So you And understand you can do, even when somebody is, we always talk about hemiparesis, that just means weakness. But what if they have hemiparalysis or they're highly spastic and they can't move it at all? So even before somebody can move, this jumpstarts the brain. That is that you can directly go to the brain without using the limb as a conduit to the brain, the way we usually do in rehab. You go right to the brain. I don't know. What do you think? Should I add anything to that? Or I don't know. That's pretty darn awesome. Pretty cool, right? It's very cool. There's a little bit more that I think is important to talk about with this. It's more than just that. How the brain lights up when a person just thinks about moving. Like that, yeah. Like mental imagery. Yes. But even more, like when you're doing an action, like when you're doing a, a goal-directed movement, like I'm going to pick up my water bottle right now. Before I even move my arm to pick up the water bottle, the visual cortex is firing because probably because I've looked at it. But um, the brain, the part of the brain that controls the movement starts firing before I start moving. You mean it anticipates the movement that you're thinking about doing. Yeah. So cheers. So cheers. So let's say you drive the same road every day and you know that there's a left turn. It's not like a left turn, but the road bends pretty hard to the left. And you've been driving it for the last 40 years. You know where it is. Mm-hmm. It's uh, over the river and through the woods to grandma's house or yes. whatever. And you know, right. And you know how to take that turn before you ever get to the turn. Not only does your occipital lobe 
imagine it visually, but your motor cortex and probably the sensory cortex and a bunch of other areas of the brain are lighting up saying, I know exactly the amount to turn the steering wheel mm-hmm. to get there. Now, how does that, how do you, how are you putting that together in your brain as related to mirror therapy? Because we're th- just because the brain is thinking about movement. I th- and I'm sure the brain is firing somewhere when people are thinking about that, but also because we, we instruct people to envision that affected limb moving. We, we instruct people to envision what it feels like, even if they can't feel anything, because we want those parts of the brain to start lighting up and working. And to bring back around to what Kathy Spencer, our guest, spoke about. She used the power super of her- survivor Kathy Spencer. Yes, super a, survivor Kathy Spencer. Recovering? Yeah, I remember her. Yes. She talked about using the power of her mind to recover from her stroke. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. So what do we have? We have mental practice, mm-hmm. which is in a very concerted and directed way, mentally practice what you're doing in rehab or whatever you're trying to remember uh, how to recover. And it really is a memory of the movement. It's in a motor engram or a motor schema, these portions of the brain that hold that movement in your memory. And so you can have extra practice even when you're not in rehab. Then there was action observation. Remember that one where you just yes. somebody else moving? Can we talk about that? Can you explain that? Uh, it, well, it's simple enough. It turns out that if I watch somebody walking, the portion of the brain that's involved in walking in me will light up. It's almost like mirror neurons. It is mirror neurons on steroids. So like as a musician, I would watch my favorite drummer before I went on stage mm-hmm. in a video form and my muscles will fire in the same duration and in the same order as if I was actually drumming and the motor and sensory cortex would light up. So my brain and my muscles would be working. It's why athletes and musicians love mental practice, but it's also why they love action observation. That is observing somebody who's really good at the movement, doing the movement, something that therapists can do with people that have had brain injury. Watch that nurse walk down the hallway. Do you see how the heel strikes? I mean, all those things. Watch people walk if you want to walk better. So we have mental practice. We have this thing that you're talking about where you imagine it just before you do the movement, whatever that's called. I forget the name of that. And then you have mirror therapy, Mm -hmm. and then you have action observation. You have all these things that can be done sort of offline in order to activate the brain before that part of the brain can even control that part of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, you just said something really important. So when I've, it's never occurred to me to instruct somebody to watch, watch the nurse walk down the hall, watch the other people as they walk by. And my OT brain kicks into gear here thinking that we don't just say to somebody, watch that person walk. We need to explain to them why, because we don't want to insult people, right? Because it could be taken like, why, well, why do you want me to watch this person walk? I know how to walk. I've walked. But explaining to them, you know, you know, sometimes we offend our people that we're working with and we don't want to. So explaining to them why, th- that it's actually work making their brain work for them for recovery. Yeah, that reminds me of a joke that my father-in-law told me. My father-in-law and I never actually had a conversation because he doesn't speak English. She was Finnish. And so this was translated. I, we were about to board a train somewhere. And he said, do, do you speak Finnish yet? And I said, no, I don't speak Finnish. And, and, and he said, and this is again through a translator, he said, why not? Here in Finland, even children can do it. 
So imagine saying some to somebody, hey, watch that guy walk. Well, that does sound kind of insulting. Look, that guy can walk. Why can't you walk? Just watch. But if you explain to them that it will have an impact on the brain, if you watch people doing whatever you want to relearn well, that will activate the brain and then jumpstart the actual movement and the learning of the movement. Yeah, it's all in the explanation. That's where a lot of our skill comes out is in the way we explain things to people. So what do you want to talk about next? Well, I want to talk about how it's not... So with mirror therapy, the research shows more than these brain areas firing. So we don't want all the brain areas firing all at once because that's too much. That's disorganized. So it also helps to suppress areas of the brain that we don't need working. And you spoke a little bit about brain areas helping... So maybe you want to talk about that a little bit? Like before, in the beginning, like with the penumbra, you talked about these brain areas will come on online to help other areas, which is beneficial, but not when it's just randomly firing. Hmm. I'm not super sure where to go with that. It's, hmm. it's making me think there are, you're, you're right, part of motor learning is having some parts of the brain not be active. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's not just motor learning, but motor unlearning. Mm. Because as you progress through these stages of recovery, you want to be able to quell the unnecessary movements. Mm -hmm. And yeah, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't have the whole brain can't be going off all at once. That's a little too much. So mirror therapy, it inhibits activity that's not needed at also, so it kind of, so like it just reorganizes the brain. All right. It does a oh, lot goodness. of stuff. It does. Yeah. And um, I have to say in doing a little bit of research on this, they're still not sure why it works and they're not specifically sure how it works, yeah. but that's okay. We don't need to know that just yet. It'll be fascinating to understand it going into the future. Mm -hmm. But for now, all we really need to know is that it does work. And we have really big meta-analyses now saying, yes, this thing you can hang your hat on. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it does um, help the two halves, the two hemispheres of the brain communicate with each other, which is important for organized movement, thinking, life. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that the left hemisphere is for logical stuff and mathematics and the right hemisphere is for artistic stuff and they never talk to each other. That's absolutely bull. And there's some great videos online of in real time. It's actually done by Finnish researchers. Every time I see Finnish research, I always pay close attention because they're very, very bright and um, and I'm married to a Finn. So I always like, so they did this great experiment where they had people listen to music that they love and put and show the fMRI data at exactly the same time. Um, the upshot was that, and maybe I should put that video in the show notes, but the entire brain lights up. Mm. It's, it's not this section, then that section, then that section on, this section off. It's not like that. It's this flowing of neurons that go across the hemispheres and to the cerebellum and from the top to the bottom, from anterior to posterior. And then what Ramachandran is saying is it goes even further than that. 
that you and I in our interactions are now using our mirror neurons to flow through each other. It's very, it's very Oprah. It's getting very Oprah in here. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> so I'm interested in like the nuts and bolts of mirror therapy. Can, do you want to go into that? Like, how do you set it up? And I mean, I can, I can talk about the lower extremity if you want to, but for the upper extremity, how would you yeah, set it up? It's so easy to set up. It really is just a matter of gathering your supplies and then using it. So you need a, a decent sized mirror. You need a mirror that's about 12 by 12 inches at least square, you know, so that, so that you can, um, so that the reflection in the mirror looks like your other limb is moving. Now th that mirror, do you have to buy it commercially? Is it super expensive to get? Are there ones dedicated to mirror therapy or what do you do? Do you go to Home Depot or what do you do there? Well, there are mirrors that you can buy from companies. They're kind of expensive. Remember when this first came out, it was mirror boxes. So they would make boxes with mirrors and, and you can do that. You can still do it any way you want to. Um, I make triangle mirrors just with um, this stuff called Coroplast. It looks like cardboard, but it's plastic and you can wipe it off between people so you can share it. Um, but it's it's bendable and durable. And uh, I just make them with um, Velcro and uh, a non-breakable mirror. So pr I prefer the mirrors that don't have an edge on them, but I know people who use mirrors with like a frame edge and it still works for people. So... Why yeah, would you not on. want to have a frame? Because I immediately, I think... Well, I think you want it to look as much like natural as possible because we are tricking the brain and the brain is smart. So it will recognize if something's not right, which is why some of the research says to cover up tattoos or markings, not to wear jewelry, because the brain will know, hey, that's not, that's not the other limb. Yeah, my other limb doesn't have a frame around it. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So frameless, okay. Yeah. Good. I have a program that I put together for occupational therapists to use. It's a Wait, only OTs can use it. What the hell, well, Deb? Listen, Pete. So <laughs> you know I have a business coach, right? Yeah. So in the business, and they said don't talk to PT coaching world. It's all about your niche market. <laughs> so I geared it towards OTs. <laughs> Anybody can use it. Um, yeah, I put the directions together in there, and you know one of the things that I want to say about a a program that's already made. It's not that people can't make a mirror therapy program. It's not that people can't make a mirror and all of this. It's just that the, the work has been done. It's all put together in one place. So it can save people a lot of time. Um, and if I can construct one of those triangular shaped mirrors, anybody can. My challenge lies in putting it together, setting it up. That always takes me a little, a moment, but you want to set it up so that it's sits at a right angle on the table because you don't want any distortion when the person's looking in the mirror. So now they have this mirror box and the reflective surface, the mirror, is facing their stronger side. Yes. And their weaker side is hidden by the back side of the mirror. Am I getting that mm -hmm. right? You are. I would also think that people, if they can't get their arm up on the table behind the mirror, that you could keep your arm on your lap. I don't think it would matter as long as you're not I seeing see. it, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't have to be, no, 
Um, so my understanding, and tell me if this is correct or not, is that, yes, for a while, it can lie there like a dead fish, but ultimately, you want them to do bilateral in-phase movement, which is both sides. Yes. So that at that point, they would have to be not, not one on the lap, but correct. both on the table. Yeah. Good thinking there, Pete. Yes. The, the important thing to note here is that people don't have to have movement to use mirror therapy as an intervention. If you have movement, you probably will want to move that limb behind the mirror. But the, when you're doing that, you don't want to take your eyes off of the image in the mirror to look and see what the affected limb is doing. Because every time you take your eyes off of that, you're kind of eliminating the effects are you're destroying the illusion yeah you're so, wrecking the movie yeah Ooh, movie yes yeah um and you want to do a series of movements that look natural and normal like the other limb is doing them you want to do activities that are interesting so you, you kind of have to mix it up you have to be a little bit creative with things you want to make sure that you're um going through all of the different motions that the limb will make. So, you know, starting with the elbow, you want to do some elbow flexion, extension, you want to do forearm pronation and supination, you want to do wrist flexion and extension, you could do radial and ulnar deviation, which I do not have in my program. Um, and you can do these motions in different planes. So you can you can do them, you know, kind of like in a gravity eliminated plane for a little bit, just for some variety. What does that mean, gravity eliminated? Yeah, so kind of like along the table. Oh, so you're using the table to support the limb. Support, yeah. Okay. Not and not that the limb that's doing the motion needs that support, but you're giving that illusion to the brain that the other limb is making that motion. Yeah, you want them to be equal. Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah. And so, you know, 20 minutes a day, twice a day for up to eight weeks, you can do mirror therapy. I think it's important to track your, your um, sessions. We just talked before about getting that baseline measurement and then regularly taking measurements. But I think it's also important to track when you do your mirror therapy. So track your sessions because it, it kind of, it's a way to hold yourself accountable. It's a way to remember that you've done it. It's a way to see that you've done it. And that is a good feeling when you know you've done something good for yourself. And then you see that over time, you're like, wow, look at I did that for 30 days. That's a good thing. It builds a habit. You can make a routine out of it. So, so you have one side and it is densely hemiparetic and it doesn't move very well at all. So with your stronger side, you're doing these movements and you're looking at them in the mirror. But then as there's progression out of the weaker side, you have it attempt to do a gross version of what the stronger side is doing. Of course, it doesn't look anywhere near as pretty, but as you say, you're not looking at it. You're just trying to grossly do it. Exactly. So let's say the movement is getting really a lot better and you've looked at the movement getting better and maybe in this chart that you're talking about where they talk about how much they did it and they're doing checkoff lists and how many minutes they did. If you were to pull the mirror away, then they'd essentially be doing bilateral training. Yes. That's, and I we was talked just, about that as well. We have. That's what I was going to say. And we've talked before about the quality of movement doesn't matter, right? So during your mirror therapy program, you're not worried about the quality of the movement. If you are moving it, if it feels like you're moving it, it doesn't matter because you're not looking at it. But when the mirror is taken away and you 
you discover that, oh, your limb is moving, you're going to keep moving it, you're going to do the bilateral training, and you're not going to be concerned with what it looks like. You're going to be very happy that it's moving, right? I agree. Do you think so? Do you think that's a good progression? So you're going from not moving at all to moving grossly to hopefully moving better to eliminating the mirror and doing bilateral training. Is is that a progression that we can live with? Or do you think that the bilateral training does not really have anything to do with mirror therapy? I think bilateral training is important. I mean, I would incorporate it. We did a whole episode on it. Mm-hmm. And we do know that when even with somebody's dominant versus non-dominant side, their dominant side will in real time inform and make better the movement of the non-dominant side. So it makes sense that as a a sort of progression of mirror therapy, you take the hands out of the mirror and now you're doing bilateral movement. So are you thinking about like in a daily routine? I would think just like at the tail end of mirror therapy where their movement is getting quite good, that maybe they should just eliminate the mirror. But maybe Mm -hmm. you can go back to the mirror. It's not like you got to ditch it. Yeah. So talking to therapists here or even caregivers, a little clinical reasoning, a little thought can go into this. So if a person has some neglect, maybe keep using the mirror. If you're seeing improvements, I would keep using the mirror and um, trying to get better improvement. And I want to mention this too about improvements. So we have to think about the amount of time. So I would give this a good 30 days at least before deciding to continue or not, because oftentimes improvement isn't seen right away. And you recently spoke about return. What what episode was that in? Do you remember? Return. So we don't see any any effect on day one. We don't see any effect on day two. Yeah, that was for constraint-induced therapy that when you come in and you um, and you scan their brain before they do the repetitive practice on the first day. Of course, there's no activation of the limb. And then at the end of the six hours or three hours or half an hour of repetitive practice of different component parts at the arm and hand, they scan the brain again and there is activation. But when they come in the next day, there's no activation again. They're back to baseline. They do the repetitive practice. There's activation again at the end of the day. They come in the third day, it's not there. And then it is there. And then by the fourth day, that's when it starts to stick. So it takes the brain. Like People don't like that. that the brain takes its time, but it's the brain. It's learning. It, it takes time to learn. It's There's a lot of computational stuff going on. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Yes. So keeping in mind that it's something you have to stick with for a while. You may not see improvement right away. You know, I do want to talk about um, a f- some adverse effects. So most people who've had a stroke who use mirror therapy don't have any adverse effects, but sometimes people feel like some grief or a sense of loss, which does tend to occur more in people who have amputations. But if that happens, you don't want to continue doing that. So I just, I wanted to mention that. And also sometimes people feel that the, when they're doing mirror therapy, that the affected limb has a heaviness to it. And that usually goes away within a week, according to the research. Mm. So, so the, the grief and loss that goes back to something that Ramachandran got when, when VS Ramachandran first developed this, he developed it for phantom limb pain, kind of forgot to mention that. Sorry about that. So they have pain in this residual limb. It feels as if the limb is there and it's highly painful. Why? Because the last snapshot that the brain took of that limb was it was crushed or whatever happened. They were in a car accident. It got cut off. It was a horror show. And so that snapshot stays with them 
and they go to the ER and they say, look, that we, you know, maybe they cast it and now it's stiff and they try to reattach it. They get, try to get to reattach and it doesn't reattach the whole time. The arm is in pain. So they go, you know, the neurosurgeon comes in and she says, I got bad news. It's infected and it's not reattaching. We got to cut this thing off. So they go ahead and they wheel them right into the OR. They cut the thing off. That person then feels that snapshot that was taken over and over and over again for the two or three days while they were making the decision about the surgery. By the way, what Ramas Chandran is now what VS what VS Ramachandran is now saying is what they should do before they amputate that limb, numb it up locally, right? Either at the spinal cord or maybe up in the brachial plexus, someplace so that the whole arm they can't feel at least for a few hours that way the last snapshot that the brain took is of nothing mm-hmm. and that's probably a lot, a lot better than a whole lot of phantom limb pain but if they have phantom limb pain that's where mirror therapy can be used to help quell that pain and it does seem to work it's pretty effective um okay so yes thank you for absolutely that. yeah but you're talking about grief or loss and when they see the intact limb in the mirror, they grieve mm-hmm. that they don't have that limb anymore. Yeah, the pain is quelled, but they go, I want that limb back. This is terrible. And so I can see that. But you're talking about something with regard to, let's say, a stroke survivor. Mm-hmm. And they're grieving over the loss of the ability to move that hemiparetic side. Is that Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, it's rare in stroke survivors. You know, being in those Facebook groups where you hear how people do treatments and things like that, some Mm. facilities have psychologists on staff to help people through those challenges. Yeah, those are the rich hospitals. Not not anywhere I've ever worked. (laughs) Yes, I don't know where I work, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it may may help to to get... Mm -hmm psychological help with with something like that. Yeah. Um, Because you don't want that kind of grieving to get in the way of your recovery or quelling of phantom limb pain or whatever. Right. Sometimes people experience dizziness. It usually goes away, but you you just don't keep doing the intervention. You just stop doing it because we don't want to make people feel worse than they already do. Mm. You know, it's interesting because in the EBRSR, the stroke engine part of it, they made a big point about saying there were no adverse effects reported, but you're suggesting maybe there are these grieving kinds of things that may be going on. That's you know, it has shown up in the literature, just not not a lot. But I, I think it's important to be aware that, that anything can happen. And we need to know that if something is happening, we just stop. That's all. It's not, you know, it's not... Um, it's not dangerous. So we just need to pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. And we had talked about what a home gym would look like. Mm. And having a mirror set up so that you can do mirror therapy for the upper extremity, that may be a fun time. Like maybe you've been working out for a while and you're kind of tired and now you sit in front of the mirror and watch the show. Hey, there's a show of how my limb will work in the future if we keep working at things. Yes. The thing that I like about mirror therapy is that it's, it's a very simple intervention. It's economic. It's not expensive at all. And it's non-invasive. Well, it's invasive in that it drives neuroplastic change. (laughs) Well, you I thought guess about that. I, Come on, Deb. We're I brain surgeons I, now. Get me in there. Yeah. Changing I know. Everything. I always think about, you know, somebody sticking a needle in me or something, you know. In the brain, like stem cells? Don't do stem it. Stem cells or, yeah, no. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, you can animate somebody with a fine wire electrode on the motor cortex, but now we have transcranial magnetic simulation that does the same thing non painfully. Mm -hmm. But I listen, let's get back to mirror therapy. Sorry. Okay. So, um, one of the things that sometimes happens, and in fact, our next episode is about subluxation. And sometimes when that shoulder subluxes or, you know, dislocates after a brain injury and uh, because of weakness in the muscles that hold the uh, arm bone in the socket where it belongs, they can get chronic regional pain syndrome, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Often in stroke, we call it shoulder hand syndrome. And, um, you know, it's where the limb has experienced this trauma. It doesn't have to be, sometimes it happens with a car accident, but sometimes it can happen with a stroke. The trauma is sort of neurological and the limb is hanging there and it's not doing well. And it develops incredible amounts of pain. Like we're talking about, I've heard people complain about wind on their hair. Oh. I mean, the, the, the sleeve, they cannot handle the sleeve on their arm. And they call it uh, chronic regional pain syndrome. It's a pain syndrome. Sometimes they call it reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Some, we usually call it shoulder hand syndrome. Often the arm is glassy and the skin can have pigment changes and there's often swelling and it's really painful. They don't even want you to look at it and it can get in the way of rehab. You know why? Because they're supposed to be moving that limb and now they don't want to move it because it hurts too much. So do you think that mirror therapy would be something that may help these people? What is the, remind me what the research says about it and, and what you would do with somebody that had shoulder hand syndrome um, that wanted to do mirror therapy. Well, first of all, I think that in implementing a mirror therapy pro protocol or a program before they have the opportunity to develop complex regional pain syndrome is our first choice. We would want to do that first. However, if that happens, and sometimes it does, mirror therapy is an intervention for chronic regional pain syndrome. And there's a whole protocol, for, like a, just in addition to doing the mirror therapy, there's like a brushing and a weight bearing protocol that they recommend for complex regional pain syndrome. But if we're talking about a stroke survivor, I think it makes more sense to use interventions that will likely prevent those types of um, experiences from happening. Wait, are you saying we should get ahead of it? Well, I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, you mean it's easier to take it away if it never happens in the first place? That's yeah. Incredible. It's like, actually, it's like a magic trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can, I, I really think I want to talk to the therapists for a little bit because I think it's important for therapists to start using this. And we have this knowledge. We understand the home program piece. I'm going to get back on my home program bandwagon because I've heard reports of therapists saying there's not enough time to do mirror therapy. We only have the certain number of sessions with people or we only have a certain number of minutes per day. There's not enough time to use mirror therapy. But if we are the ones using mirror therapy as a home program and we're training our patients right now from the moment we start working with them. This is your mirror therapy protocol. We're using this because it's an effective intervention and you have A, B, and C. So we're going to use it to address those things that are going on with you. And then we establish that they're going to do this maybe with you in the clinic so that they understand how to do it. But then once they understand it, then they should be taking their little mirror therapy kit to their room if they're in a rehab setting. And they should be doing this not during their skilled treatment time with 
OT or PT. And then they know how to do it. They're already in a routine. We're using our knowledge and understanding of habit and routine to get people set up for success later down the road because we only have a certain number of visits with them. And like we heard from Super Survivor Kathy, insurance wants people out and discharged faster. So we need to give them the tools for at home. I, I truly believe that. You mean that um, HEP doesn't stand for hand and photocopies? Right at the very end, you go, um, hey, here's some exercises. It's the same exercises that we use that help create the plateau. And we don't expect you to get any better after the plateau. So off you go. Here's some exercises, hand them photocopies. Right. You can set it up in the room before they even leave. And yes. then they get into this. That's a great idea. Yeah. And if the person has hemi inattention or if they have cognitive deficits and they need supervision, well, then that is your skill. You can begin using that with them, but the training should occur with caregiver. If they're going home, they're going home with somebody, we need to be helping the caregiver understand the benefits of this. And that's something that I've heard clinicians say that they have, they have patients that don't want to do it. I feel like it's our responsibility as the clinician to help them understand why it will benefit them. I mean, who wants to do stroke rehab? Nobody wants to have a stroke, you know? So I think it's our responsibility to help them understand that. And then Kathy made that point too. I keep talking about Kathy. Maybe we should have her back. I was going to say, maybe we need to have Kathy come back. Yeah. She said, you know, it's not about being entertained. It's about doing the work for recovery. Yes, but we both know that Kathy is a workaholic. So, no, look, it's the same as a musician or an athlete. Really good athletes love practice. Really good musicians love practice. So, this is the thing you're working on. And it sucks Mm -hmm. that you're kind of going backwards, but you may learn a thing or two from the process. Yes, exactly. Hey, Pete, you know what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things. You have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone, so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? That when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, what? We're about to do the same thing. No. You know how much work we put into this, the research, the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through, the websites, the equipment, the editing. We just need a little help. Well, how can people help? Through Venmo. We have a Venmo account and any little bit will help. Our Venmo address is at Neurons because of course it is. At Neurons? How much do you think people should give? About a million dollars. Come on. Okay, like $500? Are you serious? $50? Let's just put it this way. Every little bit helps. If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then $1 million to add neurons. And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and treatment treatment.
I can I tell you about a patient that I had yeah. not too long ago? Please. So it was a guy that had a crush injury from a bicycle accident when he was 17 and the guy was in his 50s and he still had this mangled ankle from the crush accident. And and so I did exactly what you said. I said, "Look, take a mirror because I want to dovetail this into the lower extremity because there's not much difference in the lower extremity. In fact, it's a lot easier because there's not so many joints and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, take a long mirror, your long sitting, which is, um, how would you describe long sitting? You're like sitting- Well, you're right? sitting on your, where well, you're sitting on your butt because that's where you sit, but your legs are out in front of you. Out like you're of- like Like you're sitting on a bed or- you know, that way. Right, or, right. So you're in the shape of an L. Yes. Bent at the hips. Okay. And and you can prop up your back with the wall or with the pillows or whatever, right? It's not like you have to sit because I don't even know if I can do that. It's, that's a lot of abdominal muscles. I don't know if I can do that. So anyway, I said, take a mirror and put it between your legs, have it reflecting the side that's not injured. Make sure you don't have any shoes on, socks, all the stuff that you talk, jewelry, you know, hide the whatever you have to do. If you're going to have socks on, then have the same socks on both sides, I guess. I don't know. The guy was like an old guy like me. It was probably like tube socks with the stripes, red, white, and blue. Oh, yeah. I remember those. So even for orthopedic stuff, an old crush injury, you can use this to help quell pain. So if you're a therapist out there, you got a few things, right? Chronic regional pain syndrome, shoulder hand syndrome, a crush injury, orthopedic things. It makes so much sense because now they've discovered that pain is in the brain. This is a thing that you can do in the brain to help quell pain for both phantom limb pain, as well as orthopedic, as well as chronic regional pain syndrome, any kind of pain syndrome, as long as it's unilateral. That's the X factor. It's got to be unilateral. Now, in the lower extremity, it would be exactly the same thing. You're long sitting, you're shaped like an L, you can prop yourself up in the back with pillows in a wall. And obviously, every study that they look at, they're looking at dorsium plantar flexion because that's what everybody's obsessed with, right? Is this idea that you're going to try to get dorsiflexion back so you don't have to wear an ankle foot orthosis. Um, But there's no reason also that you can't do it in sitting at a chair, So usually you're long sitting, but sometimes you're sitting in a chair, you can do heel ups, you can do eversion and inversion at the ankle, uh, knee extension, hip internal external rotation. If if your legs are dangling and they're able to move into internal external rotation, there are no rules. And I I think you would agree for the upper extremity, you could do card flipping, you could do finger tapping. The one thing that you said that's true is don't do something that you typically would only do with your left hand if you really want your right hand to do it. So I play guitar. I'm not going to have the left hand do all kinds of guitar things because the right hand would never do that in the first place. Right. And we just confuse it. Yeah. I don't want to confuse that part of the brain. But no. in the lower extremity, you don't have to worry about that much unless maybe the person, I don't know what they could possibly do with one leg that they don't do with the other. Even a soccer player, you would want them to use it bilaterally in exactly the same way. But yeah, it's a lot easier in the lower extremity. I would suggest that you take off the shoes and socks. Why? Because toes matter and toes move and they're involved mm-hmm. in ambulation and balance and a whole bunch of other things. Yes. You want to be able to see the whole foot. Yeah, it's important for the, the brain to get the whole picture. Can I talk about the mirror therapy program? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I have a mirror therapy program 
It is called the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, not because I wanted to leave anybody out, but so I'm just going to tell my whole thinking on this. Like, I think it's important to support occupational therapy practitioners in who work with adults in physical and rehab medicine. And that's that's my whole goal because I love our profession and I want us to do well. I want us to be recognized for for the knowledge that we have. And so that's why I started off focusing here. But if I'm I need sorry, to Deb, you shift. know in the mix, you know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put really lugubrious, sappy music in the back as you're talking about OT. Yeah. But go ahead, proceed. Please no, no, do. Just, I, I won't do that. I won't. Can't help myself. Like it's this thing that I love. Obviously, I'm doing a podcast with you. Um, it's an entire program. So I started off making this program just like a little booklet, and then I showed it to an OT, and he said you should make videos of these. So I did. So I made videos of them. So I I'm have it now where it's going to be delivered through the AC Health app, which is a HIPAA compliant app. It's You can record your own videos. You can access my video library on it, and you can communicate with your patients on it. So it's a whole, it's a whole system. It's got an overview of mirror therapy. It's not a detailed presentation. When I made this program, I was operating under the assumption that all OTs knew about it, and then I learned that we don't. So it's got an overview. There's a materials list. So all the supplies that you need, there's instructions and instruction video for how to make the mirror. There's a tracking sheet. Every support that you need to do the program is included. So it's normally $37 a month and you can use the app for with up to 15 patients a month with that program. So what I want to do is offer podcast listeners a discount on the mirror therapy program. And so if people input the coupon code Noggins, N-O-G-G-I-N-S, they will get 20% off of the program. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And then I do have a mirror therapy presentation that I normally sell for $55. And podcast listeners can get $10 off of that by entering the coupon code Neurons, N-E-U-R-O-N-S. So that's what I've got. I love OT. I'm passionate about my practice, and that's why I made it. And and if you're a PT listening to this, don't don't contact. Yeah. If you're a PT <laughs> listening to this, you're more than welcome to use the program and just tell your clients every time I say check with your OT that they should just pretend they hear PT. <laughs> so a, a facility could have access to this and pay that monthly fee and then be able to use it with as many patients as they wanted to? Well, that's for up to 15 patients. So we'd have to talk if it's a facility and they have a number of therapists, we just have to talk and figure out the the pricing for that. Because it's just, a lot of this is based on app costs and just me being able to manage getting everybody signed up for it. Yeah. I could see a lot of people needing this. I mean, you could have a room full of people, kind of mm-hmm. like we were talking about with constraint induced therapy, where you have this what a circuit training kind of yeah. thing. But you would have a bunch of mirrors all set up mm-hmm. using the mirror apparatus that your program provides yeah. the instructions to build quite inexpensively. Yeah, I you would could imagine. Set up, I would think you could set up a tablet and and just play the. They could play the videos on a tablet, and people aren't going to need the videos for a long time just until they understand the types of activities 
that you can do with the mirror. And it's really just to get people started thinking with, oh, these are the types of activities we could do. And then hopefully they'll get excited and as the therapist and say, oh, we could do this and we could make it interesting by switching it up in these different ways. And then when the patient or now the discharged survivor goes home, they have a real sense of how to do this thing because they saw it set up over there at the clinic. Yeah. And you can give them access to it for when they go home. But just because you know how sometimes you go home and you forget stuff. Oh, what was that again? It, give them access to it for, for a week after they go home. And then that gives you the opportunity to check in with them as well, because you can, it's, it, the app is cool. It's got a, a chat feature. It's got digital badges that patients can get. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'd like to uh, end this talk about mirror therapy with a quote from V.S. Ramachandran. But before you get into that quote, yes, we, we didn't talk about in the midst of all of his greatness, the fact that he's probably getting a card. We haven't talked about those brain cards in a while. So these are neuros neuroscience cards or people that are, what's the word? Um, honorary neuroscientists. So like Ed Taub was trained as a psychologist. You know, neuroscience as a discipline didn't start till the 90s anyway. So they didn't really have, but clearly Ramachandran is a neuroscientist. He would get like, I don't know. He's at the top there. He's one of the top ones. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, he's okay. what he's famous for is making the brain really simple. Mm. And that's what I love about him. There's nothing. Look at some of his TED Talks. It's just completely understandable. There's no, you know, let's talk about the neurotransmitters in the you know, Broadman's areas for the entire occipital lobe so that we can understand the whatever, you know, dude, just make it simple. I got a brain. I know how it works, kind of. Can you see me? And he always, and he says, this is a quote, and this is actually from Norman Deutsch's book, The Brain That Changes Itself. And so he was interviewing Ramachandra, and Ramachandra says, I have a disdain for complicated, fancy equipment because it takes a lot of time to learn how to use. Mirrors, mirrors. You stick a mirror in front of the person, mm -hmm. everything changes. That's a good quote. Yeah, because it is simple. Very cool. Thanks, yeah. Deb. Oh, I had a ball you. as usual. Me too. This was fun. All right, guys. All right. Thanks for listening, and you'll hear from us soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons, at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.